Hello and welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program providing a gender analysis of contemporary issues from Australia and internationally. I'm Giselle Hanna. Today on Women on the Line, we look at some research that's being done in the space of revenge porn, or more accurately labelled, image-based abuse. Recent research has found that one in five Australians has experienced image-based abuse, mostly in an online environment. 20% had experienced the non-consensual creation of nude or sexual images. 11% had experienced the non-consensual distribution of nude or sexual images. And 9% had experienced the threat of distributing these images. To discuss this issue and more, Jessamy Gleeson, an academic who is involved with this research, joins me on the show today. She's based at RMIT, but she's also a feminist activist organiser. I am a feminist academic and activist. I'm a feminist manager. I work at RMIT and I've just completed my PhD at Swinburne University. So you work at RMIT, though, yeah. so separate from your PhD. Mm. You're doing a work, uh, some work on what we're going to call revenge porn. Revenge porn, image-based abuse. That's yeah. The, that's the technical academic term for it. What is that? Okay, so I can tell you a little bit about what image-based abuse is and why we absolutely prefer that term over revenge porn. So revenge porn is sort of the sexy colloquial term for things. It's what gets a lot of media attention, but it's also a bit of a misnomer. So it implies that these images were taken as a form of revenge and that the person that participated or that the images were taken of was also in that case a participant in pornography which isn't always actually the case. So image-based abuse is a lot more accurate in that it reflects that it was a form of abuse and that these images weren't necessarily taken, you know, the person didn't necessarily consent to them being taken or shared. So what are we talking about? We're talking about people taking sex-related or sexual images Mm. of other people Mm -hmm. and what, posting it to social media, circulating it by email, making it available to the general public. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, so there are three types of behaviours that fall under the category of image-based abuse and it's having an image taken of you without your consent, having an image shared of you without your consent or receiving a threat to share an image without your consent. So those are the three types of behaviours and those images can be shared in a range of different ways. So they can be shared online, they can be shared through just showing an image to someone else, they can be shared via sexting or, you know, texting it to someone else, all of those kinds of things. Mm. And is this a new phenomenon? Is this something that we're seeing more? Why Why is there such a space for academic research and activism in this area? Mm. Um, It's not a new phenomenon in the sense that we've seen these kind of, you know, image sharing and attempts to embarrass or humiliate or score points against someone. That's been around since before the internet, right? So if you ever watch Sex and the City, Samantha did this in, you know, the late 2000s, that kind of stuff. So it's happened before. What is unique is the fact that the internet can really speed up and, you know, heighten how fast and how far these images are spread. So instead of, you know, printing out 100 photos of someone and pasting them up around the neighbourhood, now you can post them online anonymously to thousands of people very quickly. So the internet does have a role to play in the sense that it, you know, amplifies how fast and how far these images go. Is it it really true that you can maintain such an anonymous identity online? I 
I think mm. with all of the developments mm. of um, spyware and, you know, the resources that the state has to track what people are doing online, that it's almost impossible to maintain an, an an anonymous online identity. It's it's difficult and, I mean, it's outside, you know, my scope as a researcher to say that, yeah, it's definitely possible, but I would think that it's increasingly difficult. It's, you know, there are a lot of different tools out there that can maintain your privacy and anonymity in different ways, but at the same time, I you know, there are exactly what you said, so different forms of spyware and different methods of surveillance and that kind of stuff. Mm. Okay, and so I want to look at the gendered nature of this because, you know, so far the way we've been talking about it is just, you know, all of these people, which Mm. are all of the genders, um, Mm -hmm. may or may not have um, Mm. unwanted images of them shared, but it's probably not as equally distributed as Mm. that. So I'm assuming that mostly it's men taking unwanted images of women and sharing them unwantedly. Yes and no. So yes, in the sense that by and large, a lot of our results from different surveys and that kind of stuff have shown that perpetrators are overwhelmingly or most likely to be men. But in there's also the fact that men and women were almost as likely as each other to be victims as well or victim survivors of what's happened to them. And then there's also, if you want to dig down into, you know, issues of intersectionality, um, Indigenous people and people with disabilities were also much more likely to experience image-based abuse than others as well. So there's definitely a gendered nature to it in the sense that men are more likely to be perpetrators, but people who experience image-based abuse, no. Yeah, men and women are both likely to um, experience it. And it's, again, the same for people who are in lesbian or queer or gay relationships as well. They are more likely to experience image-based abuse. Is this something we're seeing disproportionately among young people? That's really hard to say. Um, Yes and no. And I'd have to go, yeah, again, I can't give you a strong answer on that one. I'd need to go back and look at a lot of the different survey results. And it's hard to tie that to anything outside of the fact that young people are more likely in some senses to use the internet as well. So whether it's a sense that they're more familiar with the internet and so therefore more likely to use that as a tool and this different type of abuse, and it's that they're more, you know, familiar and comfortable with using those kinds of mediums, potentially. But it's, you know, we also definitely see people from other generations that experience image-based abuse too. Tell me about that. Like, I mean, do you, in the area of elder abuse, which we know is an emerging area of consideration for legal practitioners and um, medical practitioners, are we seeing image-based abuse towards Older people? I haven't personally seen statistics to do with older people. When I say older generations, I mean people who are, you know, 40, 50, 60 year olds. So people who may, you know, have mobile phones and use them as well. I haven't seen it in any cases personally with my work at RMIT and anyone older than that yet. That's not to say that earlier surveys that, you know, my team, you know, the people that I work with have done haven't come up with that. But these surveys as well were, you know, mostly distributed online. So it's, again, the method that you're using to, you know, measure this stuff and gather data is online where older people may not always be. Mm. I I mean, the 
question that always comes up for me when I have these kinds of discussions is what to do? What is there to be done about something like this? I mean, Mm. this is not... This form of abuse is not doesn't exist in a vacuum. I mean, it exists in the world of misogyny and commodification of women's women's bodies, um, and and by extension, bodies, human bodies. It is the um, industry that gives rise to body image. The in the industry that gives rise to abuse. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What to do? It's. That, that's a hard one because it's, you know, there's no silver bullet. As you know, we know with a lot of different things with feminism, there's no one answer to it. There are a lot of different options. And I know that the work that I do at RMIT, we're in the field of criminology. So a lot of the time we're oriented towards looking at different things like how to change laws or how to ensure that, you know, frontline services can be best equipped to deal with this kind of stuff. So in Victoria and South Australia, there are currently laws that say that you cannot, you know, commit these kinds of acts against each other. They're quite specific. However, that's not the same, you know, nationwide. So it's not a federal law. And if, you know, crime's committed in New South Wales and now you live in Victoria, that can complicate things. So the internet doesn't always recognise state lines. The internet doesn't recognise the difference between different countries either. Um, So ensuring that we have federal laws would be a nice start. That's, you know, my personal opinion. It's also a case of ensuring that people, you know, general frontline staff, whether they be people in different support helplines, that kind of stuff, you know, people behind the desk at your local police station know how to treat others when they come into the station and say, look, this has happened to me and I don't really know what to do. That's one of the things that we've heard back, you know, and we've seen in other research is that the police aren't always best equipped to understand or know what to do in these kinds of situations. Well, Mm. it's interesting that you say that. I do want to pick you up on this a little bit. Mm. Might make for an interesting discussion. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) I'm not sure that law and order is the best approach. No. And I mean, that's, no, I, look, I. Oh, well, that was easy. Yeah, debate over. (laughs) (laughs) Look, um, and again, this is me as an activist outside of the work, because I'm not, I'm not just an academic. I do a lot of work outside of this as an activist and. You know, I've done other work before with slut walk and that kind of stuff. So it's not, for me, it's understanding that change isn't always a top-down thing. So as much work as we do within the current system, within law and order and within getting police to understand that, you know, this is a problem and please be nice to the people that are coming in and treat them well and that kind of stuff, that's not the, that's not the end of the solution for me. And it's also recognising that the places in which these types of abuse take place, online spaces, are by and large owned by men owned and operated and run by men. So we're talking about places like Facebook, like Snapchat, like Twitter, like Instagram, this kind of stuff. So they're taking place in environments in which women's health and well-being and safety isn't always prioritised. And it's the same to do with images of women, the censorship of, you know, breastfeeding women online, that kind of stuff. It's not always a safe or healthy kind of environment for women. And you can see that, again, not just in image-based abuse, but in the ongoing harassment and abuse of women more generally online. So it's not necessarily just a top-down way to get change to happen. It's about creating change outside of that and agitating for change from different levels as well. If everything that was outlawed via law was instantly illegal and no one did it, then, you know, we would have a lot more quicker solutions to different things, right? It's not always that way. So I completely agree with you that, the you know, changing the laws isn't the end of the conversation, it's the start of it. But I, I think it's a bit more than that too. Mm. I think the system of criminal justice is in itself perpetuating of 
violence and misogyny and sexism. Mm. So I think that when you pull men out of the context of the world and put them into the context of the criminal justice system, they don't come out of that better men. They Mm. don't come out of that feminists. No. You know, so that system doesn't deal with what gives this kind of behaviour and, in fact, might make it worse. Mm. So it's less than not a solution. It's, in fact, part of the problem. Mm. So, and look... I'm not saying, therefore, we don't have laws around violence against women. In in the way the world is structured right now, that's ludicrous. It's a backward mm. step. But it's it's neither a forward step to have them. It's a bit of a catch-22. So the issue is organising, and you are an activist, and you've mm. organised many feminist events and demonstrations and political activities. So I know that at least we agree on that. But what does it look like? What does it take? I mean, you can only have so many public forums that say, don't be a pack of assholes to women. You know, stop being misogynist, stop hating on women and don't hit women. Like there's only Mm. so much. You can say that in a tidal wave of sexist oppression. I mean, you look at the person who is the president of the United States. You look at the person who is the president of Turkey. You look at the person who is the president of the Philippines. All of these men Mm. have had vile, vile um, attitudes and, and comments, recorded comments about women that have been broadcast you know, that we all know about. The fact that um, President uh, Dutetra actually condoned the gang raping of this woman on um, on the, the cruise, you know, all the things we've heard. So this is the world in which this sits. So I know, I'm making mm. this hard for you. I know that I'm making this hard for you because your context right now is some academic research that is trying to understand the problem and what I'm leaping to is what is the solution to a problem you're still trying to get to the bottom of. Mm. But you are a feminist. You Mm. do have a feminist framework for understanding the world. Mm. Yeah. I don't have the ultimate answer, <laughs> of course. I'm shocked. Yeah, it's terrible. If we if we could solve this right here and now, it would be it would be great. I don't have an ultimate answer. Um, what I do have is you know different understandings of where change come from, and knowing that it never takes place on one level, and that it's not, and it's it's not a simple case of academics coming up with the answer and spreading it to the masses. And we all know that there are issues that you know I as an activist agitate for change within academia and within academia I can see that there are different levels of privilege and that within the work that I do that aren't always reflected or helpful or accessible to those outside of the academic community so it's about making that research really relevant to others which I'm you know really proud of in the work that I'm doing with RMIT because I feel that that's the case that this project is really valuable and really helpful to others um yeah so all I can say is that change does happen on multiple levels and the things that we hear back over and over again are that it's a case of education you know it's the classic sort of things it's the education of young people it's ensuring that there are laws and that there are different options available to people who have experienced image-based abuse it's you know to use a classic line it's beyond the scope of the research to you know (laughs) reflect on what's going on within the wider world but you know I could definitely say personally that it's tied it's tied you know they're tied together and there are these attitudes of misogyny um that take place and are 
exampled by people like President Trump and the other ones you have mentioned that are then reflected and in the sense of entitlement that perpetrators feel towards people's bodies and the ability to hold them to threats as a result of that. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. I'm speaking with academic feminist and activist Jessamy Gleeson about image-based abuse. So what is the intention of the research and that unit at RMIT in this particular project? Mm. It's to, I mean, the research itself is fantastic. So to explain it a little more clearly at the moment, I'm involved in interviewing people who have experienced image-based abuse. We're interviewing people in Australia, in New Zealand and in the UK. I am nearly done. We have a few more spots available for the research interviews in Australia and in New Zealand. UK ones haven't started. The difference with this research is that they are interviews. We have done surveys before and gotten thousands of responses, but interviews are something different. So not to be too academic, but it's qualitative research. So it's a sit-down interview where we gather lots of feelings and opinions and thoughts and get really in-depth stories. That is very different to an interview that you do, or sorry, to a survey that you do online in which, you know, even when you're given all the room in the world to, you know, write down your responses, it's not responsive. I can't then step in in the survey and ask you different questions as a result of that. So the interviews that we do can last up to an hour and a half or so, gathering people's experiences and thoughts on their particular, you know, encounter with image-based abuse. Mm. Would you ever consider interviewing perpetrators and what goes on for people when they are thinking, oh, I know this person is not consenting, let me post this image somewhere? I would, yeah, I would absolutely find that fascinating and I would be really um, intrigued, I think is the right word for that. I would would definitely consider interviewing perpetrators. It would be really, it would be tough. Yeah, it wouldn't be an easy sort of interview and it would be the kind of case where you'd need to have a really strong sort of debrief afterwards and that's, you know, there's ethics behind that kind of stuff. But I, yeah, exactly. And I mean, look, the surveys that we've done before when we were gathering data on image-based abuse, a lot of the people who were talking about it had also admitted to, you know, behaving in ways that were abusive themselves. So, Well, this is what I was going to ask. What about mm. that space of victim perpetrators? You know, like... It's, yeah. We have this idea that victim is this, you know, poor, innocent, kind of broken individual, and that's really not borne out in reality. No. A lot of victims are angry and fierce mm. and, you know, this terrible thing has happened, and in lots of cases, victims become perpetrators. Yeah. Not lots, but definitely in some cases people do. So people will admit to doing different types of behaviour that is abusive whilst in turn encountering, you know, that kind of abuse themselves. And it's very murky to understand, you know, for people who have encountered this kind of stuff, what you know, what can and can't be deemed okay within the context of abusive behaviour. So if someone has done this to you and there was no repercussions, maybe you would then go on and do that to someone else. And it's not a case of us, you know, upfront asking someone in the surveys, have you, you know, have you committed a image-based abuse? It's a matter of saying, have you ever shared an image of someone without their consent or, you know, an intimate image of someone without their consent? Have you ever taken an image of someone without their consent? And people then responding by saying yes. Mm. Mm. And what, what are they like when they say yes? Like what emerges from the conversation in your experience? Um, again, that it's mostly men (laughs) that are doing this kind of stuff and that some people are more at risk than others and that we really need to talk about breaking that down more thoroughly the people that are more at risk than others so um 
again, Indigenous women, people with disabilities, and something that's not always talked about a lot but really should be is people in queer relationships. That it, you know, that is definitely present in our data that people in queer relationships are more likely to encounter image-based abuse. Mm. I mean, this online space is so tricky. I'm involved in a lot of online forums where there is, and, and many that I've had to withdraw from yeah. um, because some of the, and it's not image-based abuse. Um, I've not participated in that or mm. seen it or been a victim of it. But I have been involved in online debates that get really, really terrible, like bullying kind of spaces. Yeah. Um, and like image-based abuse, bullying didn't arrive with mm. the, you know, advent of um, the internet. The internet. Yeah. But it does just make it much, much easier. And I, is is a conversation? Is there a conversation around regulating those spaces or giving people more tools to deal with those spaces? Or like, what do you do when you really do feel like you generically feel like you've got the freedom to say the first thought that comes to your head and it's not regulated by the normal social protocols of what Mm. you can and can't say to somebody yeah um there is definitely you know to jump back into the academic you know or to put the academic hat back on there is room for research there isn't there that disconnect between what you would say to someone when you're faced with a screen versus what you would say with to them face to face and the hurt that can come as a result of reading that kind of stuff on the screen and then having it amplified by the fact that it's available to everyone. It can be screen captured and sent off and so on and so forth. That's for image-based abuse, but it's also for bullying and harassment online more generally. And there has been a lot of research that has recently looked into abuse and harassment of women and of feminists online in particular that is coming um, out of New South Wales with Emma Jane. So there's a lot of important work that's being done there online into the behaviours of harassment online. Yeah, harassment and abuse. There is um, a definite disconnect, I think, personally, between what you would write to someone on a screen versus what you would say to them in real life. And people tend to forget that others can um, see what they've done before. So to um, give you an anonymous personal example of mine, um, you know, I work as a feminist manager with a, a lot of different clients a person was openly abusing and calling one of my clients' names, um, you know, a few weeks ago and I saw it on their Twitter feed and, you know, wrote it off. And then a few days ago they followed me and, you know, then unfollowed me and then refollowed me again. <laughs> and I don't know whether it was an attempt to get my attention or to follow me so I'd follow them back, but I thought, why would, Why on earth would I? Like, I think this person has genuinely forgotten what I do and the fact that I can see their entire Twitter feed. So it's just this this disconnect between all this ability to forget that what you've said is available to everyone and everyone else can see it if they can be bothered going back and doing so. Yeah, it's it's astounding to me, but then again, I'm sure there are things that I have said online that I've forgotten about that others have then seen and thought, why is she saying that? Mm. Yeah, it really does. I mean, in real life, mm. you can actually say some things and reconsider those things and actually move and develop and grow as a person. And we can all say quite um, you know, confidently that we're not the same person we were mm. 23, 24, 25 years ago, um, except the internet kind of doesn't allow that same kind of growth if you said something 
20 years ago, it's almost like you're being held to account today as exactly the same person you were back then. It's going to be screen capped and brought up and, you know, forever and ever you're going to um, be that person who said that thing in that Mm. one Facebook discussion. Yeah. I, I think for me it's it's a case of context and of demonstration outside of what you've said that you have grown or that you have changed in ability to put some actions behind your particular thoughts as well. So there are some behaviours that to me you can't necessarily grow out of or that it would take a lot to change. So, for example, the outing of trans women online um, by other radical feminists is something that I could never move past of or necessarily trust someone who's done that kind of behaviour because it just shows, shows a willful ignorance and ability to hurt others that I could never get over nor necessarily welcome someone into my activist group or something like that that has committed those behaviours. That's for me personally and I mean it's it's difficult for me to say as well because I'm not a trans woman but I would find that personally very hard others might not and it's also the ability to put actions behind it I'm not excusing that behavior in any means but I would find that incredibly hard and those are the kind of things that feminists can use against each other can screen capture those kinds of conversations and bring them up and have these kind of discussions that are you know without a context behind it without the fact that this happened five years ago or ten years ago Mm. Edie, it's such a world that we don't even know the consequences of yet and Mm. yet it moves so, so quickly Um, and, you know, there is a generation of people that are going to have images out there of themselves that they regret or are embarrassing for them. So it is some really important work that you and your team are doing at RMIT. Mm. It's it's also worthwhile just recognising that with those images, it's not – and something that we hear over and over again is the – you know, that people blame themselves, which is really difficult. Um, It's difficult to hear as researchers that people blame themselves and engage in these sort of victim-blaming attitudes with themselves. And it's difficult to negotiate from the perspective of research as well because you're constantly, and I mean, it came up in our surveys again that a lot of people, despite having these experiences, agreed that people shouldn't share nude images of themselves and that kind of stuff. And it's, it's really hard because we, you know, coming personally from the background of Slut Walk where, you know, one of the main things that we always say is it's not your fault, we believe you, it's not your fault. It's the same with this. It's not the fault of the person who has, you know, consented or, you know, in a lot of cases not even consented to having this image shared. You know, if you are um, drunk or passed out or something else and you have an image taken of you, or you have an image that's photoshopped with your head on it of, you know, a pornographic image or something like that, that is not your fault. You have a reasonable expectation of privacy and of having, you know, giving your consent before these things are sent or shared. Mm. It's really, the the victim blaming one is really difficult and it comes up again and again in our research. And that's a big problem and something I personally want to tackle is these understandings that, well, just don't send nude pictures or don't send sex to someone or don't date, don't, you know, don't date people who would do that stuff. Like you are giving a survey to someone before you start dating them. Will you engage in these behaviours? Oh, well, you've ticked that box. I won't, you know, I won't date you now. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jessamy, thank you so, so much for your time on the show today. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, of course, if people want to um, get in touch or hear more about the research, they can visit the website at imagebasedabuse.com or that, yeah, they can find us on Facebook under the Images of Me Facebook page. That was Jessamy Gleason, academic, feminist and activist speaking about image-based abuse. And that's all we have time for on today's program. 
Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR. The show is funded by the Community Radio Foundation and distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. Thank you.